I don't know how many times people have asked me what death is like. Sometimes when they were only an hour or two away from finding out themselves. Even when I was a very young minister, people older than I am now would ask me. Hold on to my hands and look into my eyes with their old milky eyes. As if they knew, I knew, and they were going to make me tell them what death is like. I used to say it was like going home. We have no home in this world, I used to say. And then I'd walk back up the road to this old place and make myself a pot of coffee and a fried egg sandwich. These are the words of Pastor Ames spoken in the beautiful novel Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. I wanted to open the sermon with these words today because the story before us takes place in Gilead, but also because the stories that many of us have lived this past week have brought us face to face with that cold and ruthless enemy, an ice-cold, heartless executioner, the last enemy. Death is in the world because of sin. And until Jesus comes again, death will continue to take down old men and little boys and fathers and sons and spouses and friends. And if you haven't done so already, all of us at one time or another will find ourselves crying out to the Lord, crying out in the darkness crying out to no one in particular. Is there no balm in Gilead? This is the kind of question that the elders and the people of Gilead were asking in Jephthah's time. Like their forefathers, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they worshiped and served a pantheon of gods just like the nations around them. They had forsaken the Lord and they no longer worshipped and served him. They apostatized, which is a fancy way to say that they fell from grace. They fell away from the Lord. They fell all the way down. And the reason for that is because they failed to realize that there is nothing, absolutely nothing more important in the world than the worship of God. Not family, not community, not work, not politics, not money, not sports, not investments, not vacations, not even missions. Nothing is more important than the worship of God. Worship is life. All the rest is just details. So take this to heart as a solemn warning so that you do not harden your hearts and fall away as they did. Since they failed to realize this fundamental truth, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of their enemies. And the scripture says that they were shattered to pieces. The only other time the Hebrew word that's used here is used in the scripture 
is when it's used to describe the way the Lord treated the Egyptians at the time of the Exodus. The point that the author of Judges is making for us is that Israel had fallen so low that the Lord sees them as if they were Egypt. And now that they're shattered to pieces, they cry out to the Lord in their distress. And I can't help but think, isn't this just like us? Isn't this what you do in your life? Isn't this the way I am? We can live a prayerless life in the good times when we do not need the Lord. But as soon as one thing goes wrong, as soon as things take a turn for the worst, we flip on the prayer switch and we act like pious little saints crying to the Lord in our distress treating the Lord as if he were our personal EMT who always shows up when we pray 911. So in response to the cries of his people, the Lord God says, did I not save you from all the other enemies that oppressed you from the days of Egypt till now? When you cried out to me, I saved you out of their hand. And yet... Here we are once again. You have forsaken me and served other gods. And now that you're miserable and things have fallen apart and you are shattered, you come to me. Therefore, I will save you no more. I will save you no more. Go and cry to the gods that you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. And upon hearing these words, undoubtedly many people in their heart and soul felt the question rise up. Is there no balm in Gilead? Imagine if the Lord had answered your prayers like this. I will save you no more. I will forgive you no longer. I will give you no more chances. Go and ask your other gods, the ones you truly love and trust. See if they will help you. Imagine how that would echo in your ears and in your heart. Is there no balm in Gilead? This is true discipline. This is tough love this is God teaching his people the cross-shaped truth that there are limits to his patience and grace. That we do not have a free pass to do whatever seems right in our own eyes. That we may not continue in sin so that grace may increase. Feeling regret for getting caught in your sin is not enough. Feeling resentment because your sin is wrecking your life is not enough. Feeling remorse for the negative effects in your life is not enough. Faithful repentance is what the Lord requires. And so it was in response to the Lord's tough love, to his reluctance to save his people, that the people of Israel did the right thing. They confessed their sins to the Lord. We have sinned. They cast their anxieties on the Lord. Do to us whatever seems good to you. 
They called on the Lord in humility, only please deliver us this day. And they came back to the Lord to worship in spirit and in truth. They put away their foreign gods from among themselves and they served the Lord only. And it was in response to their conversion and their change of heart that the Lord God changed his mind and became impatient over the misery of Israel. A curious phrase, impatient over the misery of Israel. The Lord God had declared, I will save you no more. But now the spirit says, literally, his soul is grieved over the misery of his people. Or his patience is running short with Israel's enemies. The point is that God changed his mind. And like his broken and shattered people, in effect, he is asking, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no man in Gilead who can stand up and lead the people and deliver them from evil? Since the Lord had sold Israel into the hand of their enemies, they will need someone to redeem them, to buy them back again, to pay the ransom for them and give them to the Lord. Well, as it turns out, in God's providence, there is such a man in Gilead. But from a human point of view, there is a problem with this man. He is described to us as a mighty warrior. But when you look a little deeper into his life and his resume, you find that he is also the son of a strange woman, a different woman, another kind of woman, a prostitute. He comes from a line of judges on his father's side. One of his grandfathers was, in fact, a judge of Israel not long ago. But his brothers despised and rejected him because his mother was different. She was a muggle, and that made him a mudblood. So this mighty warrior lived away from his family, and he lived like an exile. But he did not live alone. The scripture says that people collected around him or gathered around him. And what kind of people were they? They were the worthless. They were the lawless the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world, they all collected around him. And the elders of of Gilead know this, but desperate times call for desperate measures. So they call on Jephthah, the mighty warrior, to return from exile, to come back home, and to rule over them as chief and commander. And it's at this point in the story when we learn something about Gilead we learned that they were a grassroots community, that they held to a government by the people and for the people. They were all body and no head. We might say that they had put the duh in democracy. No wonder everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They don't have the right kind of leader. They don't have a proper ruler to show them the way to love and serve the Lord. So they call on Jephthah. And why do they want him? Because they need someone who can fight, who can be strong and courageous, something they lack. So when Jephthah hears their request, he basically responds to them the same way the Lord God did when the people cried to him for help. He said, 
Oh, wait a minute. Didn't you hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you now come back to me when you are in distress? Again, this is tough love. This is God's way of teaching his people through the judge that he has sent to save his people a very important lesson. And the lesson is this, that the Lord God and his ministers are not hanging around on the edges of your community at the beck and call of the people of God, nor are they at the mercy of the people to do their bidding. If the people of God in any generation truly want help from above, they must, as the Spirit says, obey their leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account to God for their ministry. Well, like the Lord God, Jephthah comes around and decides to lead the people. And from this point forward, we see that he does what he does because the spirit of the Lord was upon him. That does not mean that he will not make mistakes. It does not mean that he will live a flawless, sinless life. What it means is that going forward, he will no longer speak and act on his own in the power of his flesh. He will speak and act according to the power of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing he does is he proclaims the gospel of God's victory to both the enemies of God's people and to God's people. And this has the effect of striking fear in the hearts of their enemies and stirring up faith in the hearts of Israel. He declares the victory of God. He proclaims the good news of the conquest. And this is his way of declaring that the battle belongs to the Lord and that God himself will secure the victory for his people. And this is what happens. When Jephthah and his army cross over to engage the Ammonites in war, the Lord gave them into his hand and Israel subdued their enemies. And all of that is mentioned without much fanfare. We don't get to see the blood, sweat, and tears and the grit and the glory that goes into warfare. We simply see that they entered into war, God delivered them into their hands, and they subdued their enemies. Why? Because this war was over before it ever started. And after the war, Jephthah comes back to his house at Mizpah, which means a place of witness. And behold, his daughter, his only daughter, his only child came out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. This was common in their day. This was a custom for virgins and young women to come out and meet the victors as they return from war. This is like Miriam at the Red Sea celebrating the victory of God over his enemies when the people came out of Egypt. And so Jephthah's daughter comes out dancing with her tambourines. But as soon as the father sees her, he tears his clothes and says, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low and you have become a cause of great trouble to me. He's not gaslighting his daughter, by the way. He's simply coming to grips with the fact that he has made a rash vow that affects her life. And she was unaware. 
that he has vowed to the Lord to do something that will affect her life from this day forward. So he's not upset with her dancing and tambourines, to be very clear. He should have enjoyed the celebration along with her, but he cannot because what should have been a festival has turned into a kind of funeral in his heart. Why is this the case? What did he vow? This is what he vowed. If you will give me the victory over our enemies, O Lord, then it shall be that whatever comes from the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, and it shall be for the Lord, and I will offer him up an ascension. Is there no balm in Gilead? Now, whether Jephthah felt morally obligated to offer his virgin daughter as a human sacrifice to the Lord and follow through with it, or whether Jephthah gave her to the Lord as a servant at the tabernacle and offered her up as a living sacrifice, the fact remains that Jephthah is facing a serious moral dilemma. Either way he goes, he knows in his heart of hearts that this means the end of his family line. So here's his dilemma. Should he obey God's law by keeping his vow, even if it means breaking God's law by sacrificing slash murdering, no pun intended, his child and offering her to the Lord as a burnt offering? Or should he obey God's law not to murder his daughter or offer his child in sacrifice, even if it means breaking God's law by not keeping his vow? Is there no balm in Gilead? Some would argue that Jephthah must simply choose the lesser of two evils. Undoubtedly, you have all heard the expression, Choose the lesser of two evils. This might apply to you this next voting cycle when it comes time to elect the president of the United States. You will choose the lesser of two evils. This might even apply to some of you today as you pick either the Chiefs or the 49ers to win the Super Bowl. You must choose between the lesser of two evils. Well, Some argue that it even applies to this story. But I want to show you that this is not the way the Lord deals with us. This is not the way the Lord expects Jephthah to act, choose the lesser of two evils, sin greater or sin less. That's not what he's doing here. And I'll give you two reasons for that based on the law of God. First, the law of God prohibits murder and forbids parents from sacrificing their children to the gods for religious or other purposes, upon pain of death. All the teens in the room are now relieved, and parents are like, oh, (laughs) plan B. You shall not murder. You shall not worship the Lord your God in the way the nations do. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. 
There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who sacrifices any of his children, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among the people. Now keep in mind that Jephthah lived in a time and place where God and his ministers were to be taken seriously. And no priest worth his salt would have allowed Jephthah to go through with this plan to slaughter his child and sacrifice her on the altar of God at the tabernacle. The priest simply would have vacated the vow, made it null and void, and required a different kind of sacrifice. Besides that, if Jephthah decided to act independently without pastoral guidance offered by the priest, he would have made his sins even worse, more grievous and more heinous than they were. And furthermore, if he actually slaughtered his daughter and sacrificed her to the Lord, the law demanded that he should be put to death, not propped up as a model of faith and not made the leader of God's people. Secondly, the law of God prohibits bearing false witness and warns against breaking vows to the Lord most of the time. You shall not bear false witness. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And in full disclosure, many commentators who reflect on this story say, this is why Jephthah had to go through with offering his daughter as a sacrifice. But the law of God has more to say about vows than just that. In God's grace and mercy, knowing our weakness and frailty, knowing how foolish we can be, he provides this out for us. The law of God says, however, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed. In other words, if he made a rash oath and he didn't realize the impact and how wrong it was or how it was going to violate God's law, when he's made aware of that, here's what he's supposed to do. He is supposed to confess the sin he has committed, to bring a sin offering to the Lord as his compensation for the sin he has committed, and the priest shall make atonement for his sin. Again, no priest worth his salt would have required Jephthah to keep such a terribly rash vow, especially one that required him to break some other of God's laws in order to keep that vow. So the priest would have vacated it made it null and void, and required the proper sacrifice to cover his sin. If nothing else, I hope that this shows you how the law of God in the hands of a faithful minister can graciously provide you with guidance 
and, and the guardrails you need to protect you from yourself. Taking a vow to offer your child as a burnt offering or taking a vow to fast for 40 days straight or taking a vow to give all you have to the poor or to deliver up your body to be burned might seem right. It might seem righteous. It might seem religious in your eyes. But one visit with your pastors over a cup of coffee will help set you straight. That that ain't the way. So what did Jephthah do? He kept his vow to the Lord. And he gave his virgin daughter to him. She was truly sacrificed, yet she was not murdered. She was truly sacrificed to the Lord, and yet she was totally devoted body and soul to him all the days of her life. For she remained a virgin the rest of her life and served in the women's court at the tabernacle. She never knew a man sexually. But contrary to 21st century commentaries, that is not what grieved her. She mourned and lamented that she would never marry. She mourned and lamented that she would never become a wife or become one flesh and bear children or become fruitful and multiply. She lamented the fact that her father's line would end with her. But none of this faced her. Like her father, she was a truly devout believer. And if you listen to what she said, she sounds an awful lot like the Virgin Mary, the mother of our Lord, when she responded to her father's shocking news with these words, let it be to me according to your word. She was the Lord's servant, and so it was. Is there no balm in Gilead? Now, whether you believe the majority report that says Jephthah sacrificed his daughter on the altar, or whether you rightly believe the minority report that says he didn't do that, but he gave his daughter to the Lord as a servant at the tabernacle and offered her up as a living sacrifice, keep in mind what the Spirit of God says about Jephthah. The Spirit calls Jephthah a faithful man who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, escaped the edge of the sword, and was made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, of whom the world was not worthy. So far up to this point, what I've given you is a mostly uh, Jewish, say non-Christian literary reading of this story. And if we stopped right now, you could walk away with a kind of history lesson, some moral principles, maybe some spiritual insights for your life. But do you know what you would be lacking? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And since the Lord sends his messengers to preach the gospel which is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, I must tell you the good news. Otherwise, in the words of Pastor Ames, this sermon will become like ash in my mouth.
and ash in your hearts. After all, we've not yet answered the question we've been asking the whole time. Is there no bomb in Gilead? What if I told you that there is another way, a better way to read this story? A way that requires you to put on your gospel lenses and to read it in light of the Spirit of Christ. And when you read it that way, you begin to see the story pointing you to the Lord Jesus. Because then we see that this story is about the redemptive arc from a harlot to a virgin. From fallen Eve to faithful Mary. From sinful Israel to sanctified church. This story is about Jesus, the true and better Jephthah. A faithful man who was despised and rejected by his brothers. A man who was ostracized by his own kinsmen and yet embraced by worthless fellows. A man who ate with tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes and zealots, fishermen and lepers, the scum of the earth. The son of man who suffered many things and was rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and was killed and after three days rose again. A man who returned from the exile of death to help his people come back to life. A man who preached the good news of God's victory over sin and death. Who inspired his followers to take up their cross and fight the good fight of the faith. Who exposed his enemies to public shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Who gained the victory and became the head of his body, the church the captain of our souls, the prince of peace, and the savior of God's people. This story is about a virgin daughter who was betrothed to one husband, set apart for the Lord and consecrated by the washing of water with the word so that she might be presented to the Lord in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless that she might be presented as a pure virgin to the Lord, devoted body and soul to his service and worship in his holy place. Jesus Christ vows to see this come to pass, and he will keep his vow to the Lord. This story is about Jesus, the true and better Redeemer, who paid the ransom to buy us back from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And set us free from all those who shatter us and scatter us. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Is there no balm in Gilead? For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Yes, there is, my God, balm abundant in thee, rivers of atoning blood, streams of living purity. Pour the blood upon my soul, plunge me in the cleansing wave, close my wounds and make me whole, show forth thy skill to save. Yes, there is balm in Gilead, a balm that redeems Jephthah and his daughter. A bomb that heals the weak and the wounded. A bomb that rescues the perishing and restores the powerless. A bomb that helps those who cannot 
help themselves. A balm whose name is Jesus Christ, who came into the world to bear your sins to the cross, who declares to you that by his wounds you are healed. There is a balm in Gilead. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray. O Lord, who has taught us that without love all our deeds are worth nothing, send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of love, the very bond of peace and of all virtues without which anyone who lives is counted dead before you. Grant this for your only Son, Jesus Christ's sake, in whose name we always pray. Amen.